This is Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Red tide has killed tons of fish along Tampa Bay beaches this year. When microscopic algae, such as Karenia brevis, multiply into a harmful algal bloom, it can discolour the water, hence the name red tide. Other than killing marine life, red tide can cause eye irritation, coughing and sneezing, and shortness of breath. Although the algal outbreak has shown up in medium and high concentrations along the coast this year, beachgoers told WSF during spring break that they weren't put off, and the latest reports suggest the red tide may be decreasing. Today on Florida Matters, we'll talk with two experts on marine biology and ocean circulation about where red tide comes from, how it's affected by pollution and hurricanes, and how scientists are monitoring it. We spoke to Professor Bob Weisberg and Professor Thomas Fraser via Zoom. Bob Weisberg is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of South Florida, specializing in the physics of ocean circulation. Bob, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. I'm also joined by Thomas Fraser, professor and dean of the College of Marine Science at USF. Tom, thank you as well. Happy to be here. Bob, I want to start with you. Just give us the basic description of red tide. What is it? So red tide is um, a bloom of a harmful algae called Karenia brevis. And it's part of the ocean-going plant species, part of phytoplankton. And it, it generally grows very slowly, so it tends to be outcompeted by all the other plants in the ocean. But under certain conditions, it can prevail. And when it does that, we get a red tide bloom. And what are those conditions? Like what makes um, good breeding ground for Karenia brevis or red tide? So, you know, all plankton species re require nutrients and some of them require some nutrients that others really don't. And so if we're in a, a low nutrient environment, the other plants don't thrive as well as the red tide. And so the red tide can get a foothold. And once it does that, it can dominate the plant species locally. We believe that in most years, red tide or this species, Karenia brevis, begins not near the shoreline, but actually in the middle of the continental shelf, near the bottom. And when it does that and eventually gets transported to the shoreline, uh, its concentrations can increase and it could dominate the other species and become a real nuisance by killing fish and uh, having its toxins actually get into the air and humans start breathing it. And we start getting respiratory issues. Tom, give me the eyewitness description of red tide, like from a somebody who, you know, appreciates or, you know, Rick, use the ocean as a place for recreational fishing like what's it like because it, it's some pretty nasty effects right so what does it look and smell like so bob made a really good point and, and if it's okay i'd like to follow up on it a little bit about you know the fact that you know uh red tide organisms or crinia brevis are you know one of many many phytoplankton species out there right and the conditions that determine uh, which one of those organisms is going to be dominant at any given time are quite different. And one of the things that makes red tide special, as Bob pointed out, is that they're able, because of their unique biology, right, and, and physiology, able to get a foothold in low nutrient conditions that allows them to become established. 
but that doesn't mean that they don't need nutrients, right? And in fact, once they are established, right, and those red tide blooms are moved closer to shore and they find themselves in a nutrient-rich environment, um, it just allows them to, to further kind of propagate, for, for lack of a better word. So it's a bit of timing. I mean, physics are critical to this whole equation, um, but then the chemistry and, and biology comes into play there. So I just wanted to make sure I didn't want people to leave thinking that, you know, they don't need nutrients to, to grow. They certainly do. But anyways, so then the, the, your other question, I think, about how do you characterize red tides, right? And again, one of the things that's um, unique to, to various groups of phytoplankton is the types of pigments and proteins that they have in, in their cells. And that structure uh, absorbs and reflects light, right? And so um, when phytoplankton cells or organisms are uh, very concentrated, um, those light scattering characteristics uh, help an individual, you know, see what, what it looks like in the water column, right? So in the absence of any phytoplankton or anything in the water column, what you see is deep blue colors, right? That's because longer wavelengths of light like red and, and greens tend to get absorbed and what you're seeing is the reflectance, right? What's coming back, those high wavelength lights. And so that's blue. But when you have things like red tide organisms in the water column, they're absorbing a certain part of that light spectra, right? And then they're reflecting back the lights that, that we see as humans. And that those colors, you know, can be red, they can be brown, um, or any shade of uh, kind of the, the spectrum that you might want to imagine. But it has to do with some of the other things that, that are in the water column at the same time. It could be, you know, detritus, dissolved organic matters, other uh, phytoplankton, etc. So you actually can see a full range of colors. But it's the concentration of those organisms that tends to, to make it colorful. And as far as the kind of other characteristics i mean this isn't something like blue green algae which is you know like a thick kind of mat of of stuff right it's this is sort of a, a small organism that isn't necessarily you know like a, a mat of, of of matter if that makes sense so blue green algae is a phytoplankton as well right and it tends to occur in, in fresh waters more estuarine conditions but you can have them in in coastal and ocean waters as well um, what does happen, you're right, is that oftentimes the blue-green algae accumulate on the surface. They, they can form large mats, but red tide organisms or Corinia brevis as well uh, require light, just like mm. blue-green algae, um, and they do better typically in, in surface waters and they become more concentrated there. So they can be highly concentrated at the surface of the water, but they typically don't form mats like you might see in Lake Okeechobee or something like that. And what about the smell? Like, where does that come from? Because I, I do read and hear about people complaining about the, the kind of foul smell of, that's caused by red tide. Yeah, so again, they produce uh, toxins, right? Um, and those toxins can be aerosolized, and it's the chemical compounds in those toxins, right, that contribute in large part to, to that smell or that odor. Mm -hmm. And is it, it, it's dangerous to fish too, like uh, other kinds of animals? So because it's a, it's a toxic organism, it means, so those toxins are, can be fatal for, for marine organisms, right? It's a, it's a neurotoxin. 
And we encourage people not to fish in areas that are affected by red tide, right? That neurotoxin typically doesn't get into the the tissues that we would consume typically, right? Mm -hmm. Um, For fish, that's not true for shellfish. And in fact, it's quite a concern. Those are our filter feeders. And because we tend to consume whole oysters or, or mussels or something like that, we definitely discourage um, people from eating shellfish in red tide infected waters. Hopefully that helps clarify. Mm. Yeah, one of the real insidious aspects of, of red tide is by virtue of um, killing marine organisms, it then makes its own nutrient source as these organisms decay. So that's why one of the reasons why red tide is so, so difficult to get rid of it because um, it kind of feeds itself. Is that a deliberate thing? Like, is it, uh, are we talking about something which that's kind of part of its sort of replicating characteristic? Like it, it'll kill organisms so that it can keep growing? That, that seems to be our understanding of it. There's got to be a reason why it does something like that. But that also gives rise to the, the odor because not only do you have the toxins that are irritants, but you also have the, the smell of the rotting fish. Tom, How far would you have to go from a red tide afflicted beach, for example, to fish safely or to catch shellfish safely? Like, how far away do you need to get from the red tide area? Well, I think, again, what you want to do is make sure that you're not harvesting shellfish from anywhere, any waters that have uh, red tide present. Um, So it's not a, you know, a boundary or a buffer area. You just, you simply don't want it in the waters if you're going to harvest shellfish from those waters. Again, with regard to to fish, I think people just, um, most fish, mobile fish will uh, move away from uh, areas that are affected by red tide. People generally aren't going to be fishing there anyways, besides the fact that it's an unpleasant place to be. But as you get into less concentrated areas, then again, I think people would fish in those areas on a regular basis. And um, so it, it wouldn't be a deterrent. You know, the red tide is moved around by the ocean currents. In a typical day, under typical winds, you know, the ocean currents can move things tens of kilometers. And so it probably doesn't make sense to utilize shellfish, you know, within some reasonable degree of of safety from where a red tide is presently being located. The good news is, you know, the the state does issue reasonably good warnings about that. And uh, so we don't tend to have major issues with people getting poisoned by by eating shellfish and, and finfish. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking about red tide and its impacts on the beaches and marine life in the Tampa Bay region with Dr. Bob Weisberg, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at USF specializing in the physics of ocean circulation, and Professor Thomas Fraser, Dean of USF's College of Marine Science. The conversation continues after this. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. There's no question that red tide is a nuisance, killing sea life, irritating the lungs of beachgoers and threatening Tampa Bay's tourism industry. But there are also misconceptions about red tide, including what causes it. To help sort through some of the science of red tide, we sat down with two experts. Dr. Bob Weisberg, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at USF specializing in the physics of ocean circulation, and Professor Thomas Fraser, Dean of USF's College of Marine Science. 
let's get back to that conversation now. So, Bob, when you look at a map of Florida and red tide outbreaks, whether this year or in previous years, the highest concentrations look to be around the St. Petersburg, Clearwater area. So looking at this year, I mean, is it, is it normal? Are we experiencing a normal level of red tide? And how does it compare to last year? Now, so the answer is yes, it is. It is seems to be normal this year. The bullseye for red tide for the state of Florida is fairly broad. It's, I would say, it's just north of uh, the Tampa Bay region to around Naples. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason for that is based on the ocean circulation. So if indeed our hypotheses on where red tide forms in the middle of the continental shelf is correct in most years, then the way in which the ocean circulation delivers it to the beach puts the red tide in this broad bullseye region. And on occasion, we also get it in the panhandle. And we believe that it's the ocean currents that bring the red tide to the panhandle from the same origination zone that will bring it here, but under you know certain specific conditions. And on occasion, rarely, but on occasion, we get it on the east coast of Florida, and when that happens, it's red tide delivered from uh, what we call the, the the bullseye region around the Florida Keys, and then is carried up by the Gulf Stream and eventually deposited um, on the east coast of Florida. So the hypothesized formation zone, uh, which again is the middle of the West Florida continental shelf, around the latitude of Tampa Bay or a little bit north of there where the shelf starts to widen. Um, that seems to be the origin for the red tide we see just about er- anywhere in the state of Florida. So if you get red tide, at, say Daytona Beach or Melbourne Beach, it's made its way, it's made that trek all the way around from the Gulf, all the way around through the Keys and up the, the East Coast. So it must be a pretty hardy organism to survive that kind of journey. Yeah, I'll let Tom uh, comment on that, but the, the ocean is, is full of plant life, and mm. uh, you know they're all fairly hardy, I think. Yeah, again, it's well adapted to these oceanic coastal waters, right? Um, and it's essentially, as that water is being transported along the peninsula, you know, down and around the Keys and up the East Coast, um, as long as the conditions are right and the conditions being that there's plenty of, of light which there generally are because it's close to shore and plenty of nutrients you know then they will do quite well one of the things that red tide is doesn't do well in is low salinity waters right mm-hmm. and so um, you're not going to find it up in in rivers for example right because the salinity would essentially uh, not be appropriate for that mm-hmm. particular organism Okay, so if you get like a big hurricane that dumps a bunch of water on the peninsula and that all flushes out into the ocean, that's going to be bad for red tide? In the short term, probably yes, right? Because it's going, if you have a, a huge influx of fresh water and you reduce the salinities and you've got physical processes moving it away from shore in the short term, mm-hmm. um, but ultimately... Um, as that water becomes entrained with 
surrounding waters and Bob can speak to this, right? You're still going to have uh, a fairly large load of nutrients. The light environment is going to improve and the salinity characteristics are going to improve. And if red tide organisms are there in close proximity, they can quickly take advantage of that. I know that there's, there's kind of a misconception that hurricanes actually cause red tide. There's a number of ways hurricanes can add to, but it's more of a coincidence than a causal issue. So in a typical year, red tide will begin in, in fall. So let's say, you know, September, October months, we tend to get hurricanes in those months. And so the hurricane season is coincident with the initiation of red tide season. So it's, you know, some people think that hurricanes cause red tide. What, what the hurricanes do do is, is they'll increase land runoff. So that brings more nutrients into the near shore zone. The density contrast between the relatively fresh water draining off of land and the salty water coming in from the ocean results in, in fronts. So when waters of two different densities come together, it's very hard to mix. So they, they may make a front and fronts tend to concentrate anything that's, that's in the water. And so the, there's an addition of nutrients from the land. There's a formation of fronts, which is a concentrating mechanism. So those two things can actually add to the, the concentration of red tide if there's one going on to begin with. Tom, I wanted to ask about something else, which is floating around off our coast at the, ma- at the moment, the uh, sargassum blob, a big kind of clump of seaweed. Um, what impact, if any, would, would this have on red tide? So, I mean, let's think a, a little bit about the sargassum issue, right? And so sargassum is, it's a macroalgae, so it's not a, a small, you know, phytoplankton species. It originates in, in the Atlantic, right, in the Western Atlantic, and ultimately moves its way uh, across the Atlantic Ocean and up into the Caribbean and um, will affect parts of Florida, whether um, in the Keys, Southeast Florida, and, and potentially even parts of the Gulf Coast, right? And like any other plant, as Bob indicated earlier, right, they require nutrients to grow. And in this particular case, it's not nutrients off of Florida that actually initiated the bloom, right? That That's elsewhere. But as the that sargasm is transported up into waters that surround Florida. A couple of things could happen hypothetically, right? One, they, they would certainly be competing for some nutrients in the surface waters, but because they're mats, right? And they form a, a surface layer, they're going to restrict the light um, that might be available to phytoplankton at, at slightly deeper depths, right? And so the growth rates of red tide could be diminished, right? It could lead to poor growth and ultimately a senescence of that bloom. So that's that's one possible outcome, I'm sure. If you think about, uh, you know, if you're a Floridian who enjoys the beach or maybe a tourist or somebody who enjoys fishing or does it for a lot their livelihood it does look like you're, you've got a couple of things to contend with right on the east coast it could be uh sargassum seaweed and on the west coast you could be looking at red tide so what do you think the outlook is for the coast this summer with that double threat lurking and then the possibility of blue green algae down the track kind of making its way to the coast as well 
Yeah, again, I think this year is, is, is setting up to be a, a, a relatively high sargasm year for the Caribbean and, and Florida. So we can anticipate South Florida, especially being impacted by sargasm this year. I think we should probably peak in, in July, summer, midsummer. But then with regard to the red tide, you know, again, we have seen some dissipation of red tide over the last couple of weeks. And I'll let Bob speak of this, right? Um, red tide typically would set up in, in fall, late fall. Um, and depending on the, the physical environment, um, it may hang around for some time. In fact, the one that was initiated in 2017, you know, lasted all the way into 2019. But right now, what we see is, you know, about in early March, we had red tide all the way from like about Collier County all the way up uh, north of Pinellas um, in fairly high concentrations. I think south of us, we started to see a lot of that red tide dissipate um, and even in and around the Tampa Bay region. But conditions are continually evolving. And that's what one of the things we do really well, well here in the College of Marine Science. You know, we can forecast and predict where that red tide is likely to be uh, moving forward. But right now, I'm hopeful anyways, that the physics will not lead to an extensive bloom like we saw in 2017 and 2018. The first real appearance of red tide as a nuisance on our coast was on October 18th of this year, which is you know just about the right time of year when these things start. Um, and and it, the start is really coincident with the beginning of frontal passage through the state of Florida because you um, the fronts can set up what we call an upwelling circulation that could bring the deeper water from offshore to the coastline. And that's how we deliver red tide to the near shore. So um, the, the, the fall initiation generally coincides with when fronts start passing through. And it does that right through the springtime. So the, the real issue is, are there more Karenia brevis cells along the bottom offshore that can be transported to the coastline to renew the, the cells that are already there and growing there? And that's the big unknown because we don't have many observations of what's going on in the middle of the continental shelf near the bottom. The last time we had a device transit offshore, we call these gliders. They're kind of robotic devices that we send out and they sample the water column. Um, th there was some elevated chlorophyll near the bottom in the middle of the continental shelf, which is probably Karenia. And whether or not that still exists now, I, I don't know. We, we just had several days of southerly winds, which are not upwelling favorable, but now we're going to have several days of northerly winds, which which are, and so we'll we'll see. Red tide has been diminishing along our coast over the last several days, and question is, will it continue to diminish, or will it start to increase owing to new cells being transported to the beach? So we'll be watching that. I really can't make any any predictions. It really depends on what's still out there. Uh, waiting to come in, if anything. I just wanted to ask a quick question, Bob, about ocean circulation, given that that has a pretty critical role, it sounds, in the development and deployment of red tide. So if you have ocean temperatures changing and circulation patterns maybe changing in the future, what would that mean for 
future outbreaks of red tide and years down the track? I, I've been pretty vocal in arguing that the, the whole concept of global warming, which of course we should be very concerned about, is not really having an impact on red tide. The temperature variations aren't, they're sufficiently slow that they're not really affecting red tide. Um, the circulation on the West Florida Shelf is determined largely by winds and also by how the Gulf of Mexico loop current interacts with the shelf slope. Um, the shelf slope is, you know, you think about the width of the state of Florida that we're all familiar with. Well, the continental shelf is as wide. And so the loop current is pretty far away. It never comes onto the West Florida shelf, but how it interacts with the shelf slope can affect the circulation on the West Florida shelf. And in years when the loop current is interacting in such a way that it drives an uplong circulation on the shelf, we can either get a major red tide if there's stuff offshore because it'll bring it to the, right to the shoreline, or if it lasts long enough, it can eventually deplete all of those cells that are offshore and eventually um, just flush those red tide organisms away, which is what happened eventually in towards the end of 2018. So the end of the very nasty 2018 bloom really was due to the ocean circulation literally flushing it out of the system. Right now, the loop current is not having such an effect. It may in the future, we don't know. But right now, the upwelling circulation that we're getting is really wind-driven. And again, we don't know what's still remains offshore. If more cells are out there, we'll, we'll begin to see them. If not, um, maybe we're looking at the demise of, of this year, but it's, it's really too early to tell. Tom, anything you wanted to add that we hadn't touched on yet on Red Tide? You know, I'd like to just follow up on, on something that Bob said that's really important, right? I mean, there's a lot of unknowns or, or speculation about what might or might not happen with regard to, to red tide any given year. And one of the things that is critically important is that we implement the sampling and, and monitoring programs um, that allow us to detect early on the presence of red tide, because there's a couple of component parts that we need to know and, and how we prepare and respond to red tide events and, and potentially even intervene. And so we need to know when they start. And that's to date has been very difficult to do, right? So what, what's the origina origination? Um, what factors then allow red tide to develop, right? And, and form these big blooms. Um, we do a pretty good job with the instrumentation that we have available to us that we could do better about tracking and forecasting where those red tide organisms might be up so might end up so that uh, we can respond accordingly and that that could be informing our citizens uh, tourists to our state you know what potential risks are being prepared to for fish kills and, and things of that nature so all of that is important right but it, again the thing that is critical to all of this from a scientific perspective is investing in the sampling and the monitoring efforts that allow us to characterize these abloom events um, so we can again uh, respond accordingly moving forward. Dr. Bob Weisberg, Distinguished Professor at the University of South Florida, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your, your insights and your expertise on this. 
Thank you. And Thomas Fraser, Professor and Dean of the College of Marine Science at USF. Tom, thanks as much as well. There you go. Thanks for having us today, Matt. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at WUSFnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.